Welcome to the dinner party. This is your icebreaker. Okay, here's the joke. It's ancient, but Grasshopper walks into a bar and the bartender says, uh, Hey, we got a drink named after you. And the Grasshopper says, Really? You got a drink named Ned? I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM, American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from Adam Felber, writer for Real Time with Bill Maher, and a regular on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Nice. Part of that show. That'll help you break the ice. Later, you'll learn something you didn't know from prize-winning author John Jeremiah Sullivan. He's published a new book of essays. Also, talk show legend Dick Cabot is here to answer etiquette questions and tell us some amazing Groucho Marx one-liners. Uh, the man behind Martin Scorsese's new film lists his favorite illustrated books and the history of the Edsel. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've probably been hearing these cultural stories. Ricky Gervais has been confirmed to once again host the Golden Globes. The National Book Award for Nonfiction went to Stephen Greenblatt's The Swerve. Why hard fans, many of them teenage girls or younger, at the LA premiere of Breaking Dawn Part 1. Now for something you haven't heard, we turn to Aaron Britt. He is the deputy editor of Dwell Magazine. Do you have a badge? Now, Aaron? I do have a badge. It's from Dwell, so it's probably very well designed. Yeah. It's, it's not a star. It, no, it's a D. It's kind of like a chevron, and it's in Helvetica. <laughs> so, so you sleek. give people citations for going to the coffee bar too many times or Precisely. something? Precisely. <laughs> Anyone whose Volvo isn't up to snuff? You're under arrest. So, Aaron, <laughs> what are you, what are you going to be talking about this weekend? I'm going to be talking about a new book. It's just come out this week, and it's called Hollywood and the Ivy Style. All right. Okay, let's parse that out. What's the Ivy Style? The Ivy Style is the Ivy League Brooks Brothers style. Ah, it's a fashion book. It's a big fashion coffee table book, and it's full of photographs of 1950s and 60s Hollywood stars wearing, quote, the Ivy Style. So is this like sweatpants with the word Princeton on the butt? (laughs) That's what immediately leaps to Brendan's mind. (laughs) No, this is the sort of tweedy... Oxford cloth shirt, chinos and loafers, mm. blue bloods at the weekend style. Sure, and we've been uh, we've been seeing that on Hollywood stars as of late. Exactly, we've been seeing it everywhere as of late. There are tons of blogs. Every line of hip menswear seems to be trying to get a piece of this. And I actually think this book could be. The first nail in the coffin. We're going to see a return to puka shells and uh, hippie beads? No, hopefully not, because I think the Ivy style, I mean, if we can just simply get men in shirts and trousers that fit them and a (laughs) blazer from time to time, this is going to feel like a massive win. But... I do think there's this incredible media saturation of the Ivy style. And the reason this book is going to be the first nail in the coffin is because it just has no right to exist. (laughs) It could just as easily be called men in clothes because what you see is precisely what men wore in the 50s and 60s. Chino trousers, polo shirts. There's like a full color spread of Jack Lemmon in a pair of blue jeans and a cardigan. (laughs) Jeans? (laughs) That's incredible. Uh, Aaron Britt, so basically the new deputy of Dwell has decided that this book has no right to exist. That's right. He's citing them for misdemeanors. Thank you so much for the small talk, sir. Thanks for having me. And now time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our famed history lesson 
with booze. First, the history. This yes. week, back in 1960, the last Edsel automobile rolled off Ford's assembly line. Now, the folks at your dinner party may know the car was a failure. True. But they probably won't know how big and why. Michelle Philippi is here to tell you about it. In the annals of advertising, one name is synonymous with overhype. Edsel, the car that's truly new from nameplate to taillights. It was the 1950s, and Ford Motors decided it wanted something different. A car line that was just a step up in price and coolness from its cheapest jalopies. It was a good idea, which Ford followed with a bunch of bad ideas. First, the company designed the new car to be large, even though people were starting to demand small cars. Then there was the timing. Ford launched the new mid-priced car in the midst of a recession, while mid-priced car sales were slumping. And then there was the name, Edsel, after Henry Ford's only child. Because you know, nothing says cool new car like Edsel. But Ford got one thing right, marketing. Before the car's release, they plastered TV and magazines with ads promising a vehicle unlike anything anyone had ever seen. In photos, it was always out of focus or hidden under sheets. The day the Edsel went on sale, customers flocked to dealerships to get their minds blown. Not quite. Except for a push-button gear shift and an oval-shaped front grille, the Edsel didn't seem much different than other cars. Critics said it looked like, quote, an Oldsmobile sucking on a lemon. Sales got so bad, some dealers offered an incentive. Buy an Edsel, get entered into a raffle to win a pony. It didn't help. In November 1960, after just three years of production, Ford gave up on Edsel's. Adjusted for inflation, the company lost two billion bucks. The good news? So few were made, now they're collector's items. Some rare models of the car nobody wanted to buy can go for 200 grand. So that's the history. Now for a drink to serve with it, we are speaking with Robert M. Nelson. He is entertainer and sometimes bartender at Cafe Domingo Speakeasy. Although the main bartender is Courtney Smith, and she is a wonderful, smart girl who uh, puts most everything together. Courtney Smith. Boy, she must have you on a short lease that you had to like make sure you got that in there. Well, of course. They're in Detroit, Motor City, both Robert and Courtney, uh, which is the birth and death place of the Edsel. And Robert, you heard that story. What drink does it inspire you to make? It inspires the signature drink, the Edsel at Domingo's on Saturday nights. We have a special little party and we drink this. You have a, spe- you have a drink already named we, after We have this? a drink already. Word on the street is Henry Ford's son, Edsel Ford, who it was named after, even though no one wanted to name it after him. Yeah, that's right. Really liked gin. So this is gin, Werner's ginger ale, and cream, or soy milk for our vegetarian <laughs> friends and our vegan friends. Now that doesn't sound very Detroit, Motor City, gritty, like fist swinging. Well, you know, the Werner's ginger ale is actually the nation's oldest soft drink. It was invented in Detroit in 1866. It is, it's the oldest soft drink? It's older than like Dr. Pepper or, or Coke? Much older and delicious. It's aged in oak barrels. It used to be for four years. Now it's five for four minutes. But it's delicious. <laughs> And a stronger ginger ale than the stuff you get from, say, I don't even know where you get ginger ale off from. The stuff on the airplane. Okay, so the, so there's the the Detroit angle is the local soda. Exactly. But to keep with the theme, don't don't you also have to do something to the drink so that no one wants to actually buy it? Well, 
What you do is you use a touchmatic transmission to stir it. Right, those push-button transmissions the Edsel used that no one gave a damn about. You'll have to actually go into a junkyard and get it, and preferably don't wash it first. That's right. Not a moneymaker, this drink, but that's the price you pay for being clever. Well, the secret is you sell it very cheap, and sometimes you might put a shot or two of gin in extra. I see. See, what if they'd done that in the original Edsel? Just throw in some, make it cheap and throw in some free gin. Sold. And Brendan, one other thing about mm-hmm. the, the push-button transmission in the Edsel. Yeah. It was on the steering wheel where the horn usually is. Oh, that so, makes sense. <laughs> so drivers would go to hit the horn and accidentally shift the car. I see. Just lurching in overdrive around town. Well, maybe there is some logic to it, you know? So in some places, people drive with their horns. Yeah. And so... That would be a good feature for cabs. Uh, folks... You can find all our cocktail recipes on our website. Drive the information superhighway to dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. And today, the interesting person is Brian Selznick. He is a Caldecott Award-winning author of illustrated books for kids. But he's here to list some essential illustrated books for grown-ups. Hi there. My name is Brian Selznick. I'm the author and illustrator of The Invention of Hugo Cabret, which is being made into a movie by Martin Scorsese, which opens uh, November 23rd. And my new book is called Wonderstruck, which uh, was just published. Uh, I have some ideas for some illustrated books that I think all adults should have, and I think you'd be proud to have them on your bookshelf. Scott McCloud's book, Understanding Comics, I think is a a handbook for anyone who's interested in how pictures can tell a story. Scott McCloud is a really amazing comic book artist himself, and what he's done in the form of a comic book is look at the entire history of visual narrative work, starting with cave paintings, and then following that right up through like churches and the Renaissance told stories visually, uh, and how even before that, when people were illiterate, you could walk into a church, look up on the walls, and see the stories of the Bible, and you would understand these narratives even if you could not read. If you have any interest in what it means to tell a story visually, this is the first textbook that you should go to. The second book is Sean Tan's The Arrival. Sean Tan is an Australian artist, and he just won an Oscar for a short uh, animated movie that he made of one of his stories. This is a book that has no words at all, and it's probably closest to a graphic novel or like a comic book, but done in these uh, really, really beautiful, detailed sepia paintings. And it's a very unsettling, strange story about uh, an immigrant. It feels very realistic because it's a family and they've got their ratty clothes and they've got their china on the table and it feels very real. But then you begin to notice that there are strange shadows going across the walls. There are animals that you don't recognize. And what Chantan is actually doing is making the reader feel what it feels like to be the immigrant, experiencing a new land where everything is strange. And because there's no language, it transcends language. So it's something that can be shared whether someone is an immigrant, whether someone's a native speaker, whatever, you will share this same exact experience with other people who are reading the book. It's unlike anything I've ever seen before, and you have to have it. Number three 
is Maurice Sendak's Where the Wild Things Are, the sort of the, the perfect and most beautiful picture book ever made. It's a book that everybody knows, but a lot of people have not seen in a really long time. That's why I think it's really important to go back and actually look at what Maurice Sendak was doing with the pictures and the text and the page turns. The turning of the page is really this dramatic moment. You can do things that mimic the ways movies are made. You can have cuts, you can have edits, you can imitate a panning shot, you can do a zoom in, a nice close-up. That's something I was exploring with the invention of Hugo Cabret, trying to tell a story that feels like a movie. You know, it's about the early history of cinema, so I wanted it to feel like a movie. Sendak is the, the master of that. A guest list from Brian Selznick, author of the children's book The Invention of Hugo Cabret. Martin Scorsese's film adaptation, Hugo, comes out next week. Enrico, I was really glad to hear those suggestions. Yeah. Because cool. I think the only illustrated stuff I have in my house mm-hmm. are back issues of The New Yorker. I said, <laughs> Which are unopened. I, yeah, I wish they were more illustrated, actually, so <laughs> that we would have time to actually read them. They're deceptively thin. Yeah. Folks, we're going to take a break, but when we get back, Nile Rogers, the man behind hits like David Bowie's Let's Dance, tells us what happened the first time he went to Studio 54. Whoa. Can we air that on a family-friendly show? With, with liberal beeping. And coming up, Dick Cavett has an etiquette question for you. Is it all right to spit out hot soup at the White House? Shout an answer at your radio when the dinner party returns. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the culture show that supplies you with conversation fodder for your weekend. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, a conversation fodder supplier. Yes, wholesale <laughs> chit-chat. Coming up, musician Niall Rogers talks about writing the theme song of the disco era, and later fashion stylist Aya Kanai tells us what a peplum is. I'm intimidated. You don't have one. Oh, good. <laughs> but first, it's time for a weekly etiquette segment, And here to answer listeners' etiquette questions is Mr. Dick Cavett. Yes, on the Dick Cavett Show, he interviewed basically every interesting person on Earth back then. (laughs) He's a contributor to the New York Times. He was pals with Groucho Marx. And Dick, we think you're the perfect guy to tell our audience how to behave. (laughs) Thank you. Part of the reason is your hosting skills, and we're assuming that they translate to dinner parties and other events. Okay, I can deal with that assumption. (laughs) I think your handling of the famous Norman Mailer and Gore Vidal spat alone. (laughs) Yeah, that showed good manners. Qualifies you. Do you agree? (laughs) (laughs) Dick, for those who don't know, maybe you can set the scene. This was Mailer and Vidal were guests on your talk show Mm. back in the day. Well, that's known as my notorious show. People have given dinner parties around watching the DVD of it, or which unfortunately isn't for sale, but I have given it to friends, and they said we had everybody over and they were on the edge of their chair. Hmm. Norman came on, I believe the term in England is pissed, uh, <laughs> yes. having stopped, as he said, from at a couple of favorite watering holes. His purpose that night, we learned during the show, was to eviscerate Gore Vidal <laughs> for something he had Gore had written in the New York Review of Books about him. It's a wonderful moment, speaking of manners, when um, the great, dignified, wonderful, aged, witty Janet Flanner, when she suddenly got irritated and said, you talk as if you were the only ones here. And Norman said, well, Miss Flanner, aren't we the only ones here? She said, no, I'm here, he's here, pointing to the audience, they're here, and I'm going very bored. (laughs) 
<laughs> and with this, she threw a kiss to Norman. She was the epitome of the well-mannered lady. Yeah. Not that she didn't have a nice, salty tongue. <laughs> <laughs> well, that alone qualifies you to answer some of our listeners' questions. Um, wow. <laughs> yeah, and by the way, you're probably the most qualified celebrity we've had in this segment. <laughs> Uh, here's the first question. This comes from Toby in Dresden, Delaware. That's okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know why I said it that way. Like, I can't believe such a place exists. <laughs> Toby writes, I'm 31 and the father of two wonderful children, but of my circle of friends, I'm the only one so far who's decided on children. And so they, my young, hip, party-all-night friends, routinely plan parties that begin at 9 and go to the wee hours. My question is there a delicate way to suggest that the fun be earlier? Or how can I leave very early without seeming like I'm not having fun? Well, I think probably his best bet would be to ditch the kids. <laughs> that would take away a whole lot of the problem. You mean like forever? Just like, I don't know, put them to an orphanage? What? No, just send them to camp for a couple of years and get all the parties you want out of your system. And then after that... Uh, don't worry about it if people say you're leaving early. You can always say, I just got a telegram that my great aunt is on the 16th floor ledge and I have to go get her off or something. Can, I don't can... think there are 16th floors in Dresden, Delaware. Well, no. Maybe not. <laughs> but there may well be, and we're big city snooty people for saying so. That's true. Gra Groucho left a party once early in Los Angeles with a rather snooty hostess who said, Leaving, Mr. Marks? And Groucho said, I've had a wonderful evening, but this wasn't it. <laughs> oh, man. I would be afraid to have Groucho Marx to my party yeah. just for, for fear of withering one-liners. <laughs> There's a risk. But always, he said, speaking of manners, when I, when I first knew him, he was saying, I, I can't insult anybody anymore. You know, I've become an institution, and uh, there are people I genuinely dislike, and I say <laughs> something to them, and they go, oh, that's Groucho. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, what a, what a pleasure to have been insulted by You should, you by should see him next to Norman Mailer then. Oh, that, that would have been interesting. Uh, the the um, One time at, we were at the Beverly Hilton, I think it was, restaurant, and a, woman, a couple came over, and the guy says, Hey, Groucho, say something insulting to my wife. <laughs> and Groucho looked and said, with a wife like that, you should be able to think of your own insult. <laughs> oh, my God. But to his disappointment, they loved it. This know? is true. So so basically, you say to Toby, uh, send, your, <laughs> send your kid to camp and then lie to get out of the party. Those would be the two most ethical things to do. <laughs> okay, let's go to the next question. Yeah. <laughs> this comes from Cindy in West Hollywood, California. It is, uh, what is the etiquette on how to handle the restaurant bill when the person you're eating with is clearly better off than you? Mm. Do you offer to go Dutch or offer to pay the entire bill and hope the person will dismiss your offer? Is it rude to not make an attempt to contribute to the bill? Cindy's an astute question and answer. That's a good one. Uh, we've all had that somewhere. Whether it, the person you're dining with is a, a CEO or um, an Academy Award-winning filthy rich actor or whatever. I think that's more germane to your life than ours. Well, <laughs> I, that's a hard one. I, I don't know. I think um, I think what I usually do is sort of say, can we reduce the pain on you and pull out your billfold, and, which allows them to say, put that away. So you kind of offer to pay. I sort of offer to pay, unless I intensely despise the person. And then I just say, why don't you pay and let's get out of here. <laughs> why, why are you having lunch with them then? Free lunch. <laughs> I've been an out-of-work actor. I know what it means.
Here's our here's our final question. Okay. This is something that we ask of, of everyone, and you've sort of touched on this multiple times during this interview, but still, what is the most memorable get-together you have ever been to? Who, what, when? Details, please. You know, I always have trouble with most questions. When I do a lecture, I'll say that it's Q&A time if you want, but there's one question that's out. Who's been your most interesting guest? How could you know? <laughs> Uh, I have one for those people, all those nice people. Uh, you have the etiquette question for the audience? Yeah. Is it all right yeah. to spit out hot soup at the White House? <laughs> did you do this? It's one of my proudest achievements. I thought George Bush did that in China. <laughs> no, he vomited on the Japanese oh. uh, finance minister. Sorry, that and, was something else. And uh, like... I speak quite a bit of Japanese, and it's amusing to me that after that I was in Japan and talking to some street kids, and they coined a new term in honor of that. Bushu suru. Suru means to do. Bushu suru, which means to vomit. <laughs> to do a bush. <laughs> but what about you? What was your... Oh, I was at the White House, uh, the Ford White House. As I recall, it was a dinner for the new German ambassador, perhaps. And I was seated with gowned and tuxedoed denizens of Georgetown, and some of them rather ancient. And um, <laughs> they put a soup down, and I should have noticed that nobody else made the mistake I did of thinking it was vichyssoise. Cold. I took a big mouthful and scalded my mouth and spat it all over the bowl <laughs> and the tablecloth and Mrs. Gottrock sitting next to me. <laughs> the fact is, a couple of people congratulated me afterwards saying, have the nerve to do that. And I didn't want to say, take any nerve, it was reflex. I am curious, though, what did you say? I mean, was there any way to get he out of it? He couldn't talk, his mouth was... I, I don't, yeah, I, I wasn't very <laughs> voluble with speech right then. And now the kids in Georgetown say, to Cavett. Kabatsuru. Kabatsuru. Weirdly, they speak in Japanese. To Cavett? It's been an incredible pleasure having you. It was my pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Have me back sometime when I'm out of work. Being nice and having manners, these are things that we all should know. I hope that you have learned some manners. Thank you now and you may go. And now, time to eavesdrop. Niall Rogers was a member of 70s disco band Chic. He produced hits for everyone from Diana Ross to Madonna, and he has a brand new memoir. This week, we overhear him telling a dinner party-worthy story from it. Hi, I'm Niall Rogers. I'm a producer, songwriter, and a pretty good guitar player. I've just written a memoir called Le Freak. So, so my songwriting and production partner, bassist extraordinaire Bernard Edwards, he and I were invited over to Studio 54 because Grace Jones believed that she wanted us to produce and write her new record. It was New Year's Eve, 1977, going into 78. Grace Jones said to us in that very affected voice of hers, Okay, darling, I want you to come to the back door. And you knock on the door and you tell them that you're a personal guest of Grace Jones. Which is like, you know, that's like saying you're a personal guest of <laughs> Elvis. So it, was, it seemed plausible to us, so we did that. We got dressed up in our... Um, New Year's Eve best and we knocked on the back door and we said we were personal guests of Grace Jones and the security guy at the back door uh, looked us up and down, didn't spend much time evaluating us and basically just said um, F off. Slammed the door in our faces and we figured that uh, it was probably a legitimate error 
and maybe Grace had given our names uh, to the front door. So we walked around, and, and, and as soon as we hit 54th Street and 8th Avenue, we saw this ocean of people, and we sort of swam through this ocean of people, and we got to the bouncer, the now-famous Mark Beneke at the front door, and Mark looked up and down the list, and he didn't find our names anywhere, and it was pretty obvious that we weren't going to get into Studio 54 that night. So uh, we walked to my apartment, which was just around the corner. And music is not just my livelihood, but it's also my release mechanism. And so I picked up my guitar, Bernard picked up his bass, and I instantly started doing this jam, uh, something like... And was into it, and we just started grooving and riffing, and we started singing... Ah, F off, boom, 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 F Studio 54. Ah, F off, boom, 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 boom. And as we sang it over and over, it would develop and develop and develop. And we did this entire elaborate arrangement of the song. And it was pretty brilliant, actually. And Bernard recognized that it was brilliant. And he looked at me and said, pulling his glasses down over the bridge of his nose, uh, now you know this is happening, right? So I, I say to him, oh, come on, man, we can't get uh, F off on the top 40 radio. That ain't going to work. So we uh, changed F off to freak off, which was a euphemism for the F word. And we kept grooving on that. And somehow the lyrics didn't make sense. Freak off didn't sound sexy. It just didn't have that thing. And then uh, I went back into my hippie mode because I was you know, a hippie in the late 60s and early 70s. And, and I just reverted, like, in one split second. I said, oh, wow, nod, man. How about, like, when you're freaking out? You know, like, when you drop acid, man, and, you know... And he looked at me like, what? And I said, whoops, I forgot my black identity card. And I just flipped on a dime and said, hey, you know what I'm talking about, my brother. You know, like, when you're on the dance floor, and, you know, there's a fine chick and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, you freak out because the music is overwhelming you. And he said, oh, yeah. So they, that night, they weren't going to let us in. Uh, only a short while after, there was an indie record that came out called A Night at Studio 54. And guess what the featured song was? And guess who was on the cover? Me and Bernard and our little band, Chic. <laughs> and the premiere song on that record was Le Freak. And that album went multiple platinum. Producer Niall Rogers recounting a story from his brand new memoir, Le Freak, an upside-down story of family, disco, and destiny. You are listening to The Dinner Party from American Public Media. So it's time for Chattering Class, the part of the show where we talk to someone who knows something we don't, so we can hold our own if the topic comes up in conversation. This week's subject... Women's fashion trends. We're deep in autumn, approaching winter. What are we going to be seeing? That's what I want to know. So our teacher this week is Aya Kanai. She is a fashion stylist who works with Nylon Magazine as well as Teen Vogue. She also dresses celebrities like Michelle Williams and Kristen Stewart. Aya, when you dress celebrities, are you actually pulling the jeans up over each leg? Are they like rag dolls? I'm not pulling the jeans (laughs) up over each leg, but I am tying the shoes. Really? Yes. (laughs) And is that just to get the bow just right? You're absolutely right. Okay. Most people don't 
actually know how to make a bow lay properly. And that is what I get paid for. See, this is why I use Velcro, so I don't have to pay anyone. Mm -hmm. All right, so Aya, tell us, what are some trends and things you're seeing out there for women? We've been seeing a lot of tuxedos for women. Like tuxedo t-shirts? No, like satin lapels, bow ties, crisp tuxedo shirts, all placed atop a really skinny trouser. Huh. We saw it on the runway from young American designers like Jason Wu, who's often found dressing Michelle Obama, okay. and established American fashion designers like Michael Kors and Ralph Lauren. Hmm. Um, I think that a lot of celebrities on the red carpet are trying to find different ways to stand out and wearing a suit feels like a bold statement. Did Diane Keaton do this sort of thing? Or am I... Diane Keaton did it, and there's great historical precedent for women wearing suiting, you know, obviously back to, like, gorgeous women like Catherine Hepburn in a wide-leg trouser. Yeah. And so does this mean we're going to start seeing men wearing gowns? Oh, wow, I didn't think of that. <laughs> I could see Tom Cruise in, like, a nice chiffon kind of uh, gown. Well, Mark nope. Jacobs does wear a leather kilt, so, so hey, why not? Tuxedos are expensive. Do you think that this is something we may see, you know, at the mall or well, around really town? Well, really why I wanted to bring it up was to put it out there as a suggestion for women who are thinking about how they want to dress for holiday parties. Oh. I think that wearing a cocktail dress while fun, and there's many options out there for that kind of thing, um, people who have a little bit more of an experimental flair might want to do something a little bit different this holiday season. Yeah, so it's, so it's elegant and it's a little bit different. And as someone who wears pants, it's actually pretty comfortable. It is. <laughs> All right, well, that's pretty cool. What's another thing that's going on out there? Okay, another thing I have been seeing is the return of the peplum. <laughs> the re that sounds like a J.R.R. Tolkien. I know, that's why I thought it was so cool. I just wanted to say that on the radio. <laughs> so, so what is a peplum and what does it look like? I think that it might originally come from some kind of like military-oriented garb. It's an already sewn-on attachment that you will find on jackets, skirts, and dresses. So it's like a little frothy tutu that comes out from the waist, even though there's more skirt underneath it. So like if you're wearing a pencil skirt, which say comes to the knee, okay. there's like a little mini skirt that only covers your like tummy area that <laughs> is a flouncy, poofy thing. <laughs> and so does this play with someone's silhouette, I imagine, right? Oh, absolutely. Okay. It absolutely adds volume to the one area of a woman's body that she would probably prefer to not <laughs> add volume to. So this is kind of like the Big Mac or like the cupcake of fashion. It just adds volume to your hips. It is the cupcake. Whoa. <laughs> or it's like a pre-pregnancy. Like if you are dying to look pregnant, you might want to <laughs> rock one of these. Are women dying to look pregnant? No. <laughs> okay. So what other fashion trend are you seeing out there? Another thing that I've been seeing is wearing a pajama top to work apparently is par for the course these days. Wait, really? I mean, I do this, but not on purpose, just when I'm running late for work. Well, designers like Rag and Bone have made a gorgeous silk pajama top that is over $300. Yikes. 
Alexa Chung, uh, fashion's favorite English it girl. That's right. In her collection from Madewell, did a pajama top and bottom hmm. and had, you know, cute palm trees on them. Mm-hmm. And they are not meant to be worn in bed. They're meant to be worn with your jeans and your boots and worn out into the world. I, I do think fashion can kind of give us a window into the zeitgeist. The world is feeling feeling a little bit depressed these days. Some of the some of the world's moving back to their parents' house. They just want to stay at home, and so there's this impulse towards just wearing big pajamas. How am I totally mm-hmm. wrong? Possibly, and I think it might be related to some of the sort of '90s grunge throwbacks. And the '90s are coming back. Well, I mean, come on, Brendan. I feel like everybody knows that. Don't <laughs> pretend like you don't. <laughs> hey, I wasn't sure the '90s were in even during the '90s, so. <laughs> I can I thanks for getting us up to speed on women's fashion trends. It's my pleasure. And thanks for making it okay for me to wear a tuxedo t-shirt. <laughs> oh my god, I have one too. So Brendan, finally, I have been waiting for pajamas at work to come into fashion. I know you at have. Last I know you the have. world comes to me. <laughs> I know you have. First of all, that was a review of women's fashion trends. I do not care. A- and second of all, I don't think she was referring to footsie pajamas, my friend. They are convenient. <laughs> Folks, coming up, we visit one of the best restaurant bathrooms in America, and author John Jeremiah Sullivan talks about reality TV stars, or as he calls them... The test tube babies of Whitman and Poe. He's thought a lot about it. Yeah. All that and more when the dinner party returns. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, Janet Weiss of the band Wild Flag will be here with some suggestions for music to play at your next get-together. Yes. But first, it's time for the main course, where we talk about the best part of any dinner party, food. That's right. And Brendan, this week, the food blog Eater yes. handed out their annual awards. Okay. They honor restaurants in each of the major cities they write about. And one new award category in particular caught my eye. Uh, oh, best food themed public radio host with three names? That doesn't exist. Didn't catch your eye. Uh, best <laughs> restaurant bathroom. Classy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not proud of it, but my interest was piqued. Uh, the Best Restaurant Bathroom Award here in L.A. went to a bar and burger joint called Hamburger Mary's. It's part of a mini chain of restaurants. Mm-hmm. So I went there to have co-owner Ruben Lopez give me a tour of this prize-winning restroom. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> the places you go for journalism. <laughs> this is why I got in the business. Uh, of course, we started in the restaurant dining room talking about its overall design. It's all based off of a bloody red uh, interior. It evolves eventually, season by season, sort of like eclectic Martha Stewart's, if you can call it that. Uh, I've never heard that term (laughs) used before. So whatever you find actually sort of works with the the decor. There's nothing you can throw away. That's a very flamboyant place. I'm I'm looking right now, for instance, at some... uh, disembodied mannequin legs dressed in fishnets sort of sticking out of one of the booths with Christmas tree lights wrapped around them. Yes, the legs actually are uh, constant throughout the year. Uh, We decor them with, in Halloween, sort of cobwebs wrapped around them. Uh, What about Easter? For Easter, with Easter bunnies or Easter eggs glued to them. That's super spiritual. (laughs) Very spiritual, yeah. Thanksgiving is one of those Seasons where you're like, what do you really use to decorate? Uh, just to drape the legs with <laughs> drape turkey. The legs with turkey or gravy? I don't know. That that would be odd. Speaking of odd, how does this? All right, we're, we haven't yet gone into the bathroom. Were you surprised to win best 
bathroom? There's a lot of restaurant bathrooms in Los Angeles. There's a lot of restaurant bathrooms. Yeah, when I got the email message, I was a little bit perplexed. It's, I haven't heard, I, it's not the first time I heard of a mention about the bathroom or the uniqueness of the bathroom, but we pride ourselves on our food. The bathroom uh, <laughs> thing kind of threw me off this week. I was not expecting, uh, you won the bathroom award. I'm like, oh. <laughs> All right. So what kind of what kind of comments do you get? Uh, I, comments that I get usually is like, oh, my God, I went to the bathroom and it brought a smile to my face. So how often do you get that from someone or a stranger or a restaurant? <laughs> Never. I don't think anybody's <laughs> ever said that at my house. And which is good. I think that was the sole intent when we sort of, you know, try to set up the restaurant and make it feel a bit homey. Our motto is eat, drink, and be merry. M-A-R-Y. M-A-R-Y, yeah. And then with that, uh, we felt like, why does the experience have to end on the floor? Why can't we, you know, be merry in the bathroom? And I think it sometimes has become such a serious situation when people go to the bathroom. I've been in many a bathroom and it seems like a funeral home. It's quiet. The lights are up. Very austere often. Very austere. And so when we looked at sort of how do we set something to make it more fun, uh, you know, we felt like to walk into a bathroom and get an experience. All right. Let us see this award-winning space. Oh, exciting. Let's go. <laughs> okay, here we go. Walking into the Mary's bathroom. The award winning It is, it is unisex, I noticed. Unisex, yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> it is, uh, how do I describe this? It's kind of a brothel-y slash disco feel. There you go. Did you notice our whole little burlesque type uh, setup? That's right. You've got, you've got ads for burlesque. I guess you have burlesque nights yeah, here. We actually have burlesque nights on uh, Saturday night and Thursday night. Uh, I mean, like, you could actually have a burlesque show in here. There, there are mirrors everywhere. Yeah, and I think it's sort of like the carnival room of mirrors where you walk in and there's sort of the depth that feels like you're looking into a space of maybe 100 feet deep. And actually, it's not. Yeah, it's kind of like infinite. You feel like you're in an infinite, very glamorous quote unquote space. And with that, it's sort of, it's, it's more of a space for a group gathering. So we can get a couple of three or four girls in here and each one of those girls can actually put their makeup on at the same time with the amount of mirrors. That's right. <laughs> so it's actually functional, although it's it doesn't look- It's a functional mirror while someone's on the throne. I see. Listening to ABBA. So <laughs> Wait, is it, excuse me? Listening to ABBA. Wait, so I don't hear anything right now. Is there a soundtrack to this bathroom? There is a soundtrack to this bathroom, and it's in a continuous loop. So Why don't, why don't you kick it on? All right, let me get it from the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Abba's Dancing Queen on constant loop. You've also got a disco ball. And a disco ball also continues. He turns and also a spotlight on it. How many times do you think you played Dancing Queen in, in this um, bathroom? So, been in the restaurant for maybe six years. 365 days times that. Do you pay ABBA royalties for this? Dancing Queen in a continuous loop and no. <laughs> so just to recap, you're, you're in a bathroom. There's like blood red walls. There are, you know, there's lights from the spinning disco ball spinning all around you and you see infinite use in the mirrored walls and the music is playing. There's a stainless steel sink sitting on top of what looks like a Roman column, kind of. Yeah. I mean, like, do, do you have people ever show up here just to go to this room? We've had actually some people who haven't been here in a while, ran into someone during Halloween, came in and talked about how wonderful she felt, the fact that we haven't changed the bathroom. So, I've been here three years ago, and you're still playing the song, it feels good. <laughs> Man, Rico, quite a disco-themed show today. Right? Totally weird. <laughs> I can actually imagine Nile Rodgers playing a killer set in that bathroom. Great acoustics. Of course. 
Uh, by the way, the winner of Eater's Best Bathroom Award in San Francisco yeah. is a place called Bushite. I think I'm pronouncing it right. They have a high-tech Japanese toilet that apparently costs $5,000. <laughs> Does it drive you home afterwards? <laughs> <laughs> it is home. It, oh, yeah. It sleeps two people. Makes sense. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, polls are open in our Best Radio Show Ever contest. We're the only nominee. And you can vote for us by leaving a comment on our blog, dinnerpartydownload.org. Our guest of honor this week is writer John Jeremiah Sullivan. His award-winning essays about American popular culture have been published in the New York Times Magazine, GQ, The Paris Review, where he is the Southern editor. And he's got a new book of essays out called Pulphead. And John... When I wrote that intro, I found that I wrote popular instead of pop culture. And um, I think I did that because your essays, you know, t- often take on pop culture subject matter like Axl Rose or the real world. But then you kind of treat them with such respect. You kind of hoist them up <laughs> a little bit that I felt like popular was the better word. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I think it does. I mean, I think you're isolating something that's that's true about most of the essays, which is that they take some interest in high, low culture categories and the extent to which those are just cultural conventions for the most part. And mm-hmm. then when you really start to look at them closely, they start to break down almost immediately. And that's kind of what you're doing in some of these essays, like the Michael Jackson one comes to mind, as well as the Axl Rose piece. Yeah, I'm interested in, when I write about music, when I write about art and books, I'm interested in people who are engaging at the highest level with whatever the form is because I, because more and more I become convinced that high and low forms, high and low genres don't have intrinsic lesser or greater values. It's about how intensely the artist is engaging with the form, how seriously they are taking the, the, the conventional constraints and how inventive they're being in ways to get in and finding ways to get around those. That, that stuff can happen with Baroque counterpoint and it can happen with three chords and a PV amp if the magic is, is there and if yeah. the, the artist is looking at the form itself not as something that gives value but as something that's to be grappled with and transcended, that's, that's where it happens. Yeah, and, and it can happen with the public radio show too, right? I think uh, it's happening right now. <laughs> Thanks for that reassurance. <laughs> Uh, All right. Well, I'd like to have you read an excerpt uh, from a different sort of essay. Uh, This one's called Getting Down to What is Really Real. It's on page 99. In this piece, you're checking out just low culture, specifically reality television and the show which started the genre called The Real World, um, in which a bunch of strangers move in together and cameras follow them. So uh, on an assignment for GQ, you went to visit some of the former subjects of the show in their post-show lives where they do paid appearances at nightclubs around the country, and they're kind of mini-celebrities. You know, I was dealing with my own self-loathing for having been a fan of the real world for a long time. It created this strange voice that this piece is written in that I hope never to use again. Anyway, this is the paragraph. People hate these shows, but their hatred smacks of denial. It's all there, all the old American grotesques the test-tube babies of Whitman and Poe, a great gauntlet of doubtless eyes, big mouths spewing fantastic catchphrase fountains of impenetrable self-justification, muttering dark prayers, calling on God to strike down those who would with their money, their cash, and always knowing, always preaching, using weird phrases that nobody uses except everybody uses them now. 
constantly talking about goals, throwing carbonic acid on our castmates because they used our special cup, and then calling our mom to say in a baby voice, people don't get me here, walking around half naked with a butcher knife behind our backs, telling it like it is, y'all, what, what? And never passive aggressive, no, saying it straight to your face, but crying. My God, there have been more tears shed on reality TV than by all the war widows of the world. Are we so raw? It must be so. There are simply too many of them, too many shows and too many people on the shows for them not to be revealing something endemic. This is us, a people of savage sentimentality, weeping and lifting weights. You preface this by saying you don't like this voice and you hope not to use it again. Why not? Because it came into being specifically as a reaction to the material and in response to the, to the challenge of writing it. It was one of those pieces where, in the end, I decided to let it go a little mad. It stopped sounding like me. It, didn't, it stopped representing anything that I would say in a rational moment. But it felt more rather than less honest as a result. There was something incoherent about the whole project of taking seriously something that was this culturally vacant. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it was such a big part of the culture that I grew up on. I almost felt like there was some kind of perspective to be gained by just going into my own bad taste, putting it on display. Well, speaking of putting yourself on display and hopefully not bad taste, uh, we have two standard questions that we ask uh, each guest on our show. And the first one is, what question are you tired of being asked? One thing that's, um, it, it, it's hard when people interview you and, and instead of going at you a little bit, they go so much with you that you almost don't know what to say except yes, you're right, and, and, and to nod your head. And, and, you, and, and you do run into some viewers who'll say, on page 45, you wrote that, you know, so-and-so was a genius. Do you still think that, you know? Yeah, stuff like that. It leaves it leaves you with nothing to do. It's almost better to, to have someone really sort of um, bird dogging you, you know, and making you <laughs> making you defend yourself because the words just come more easily. <laughs> well, so to that point, you know, I really think your semicolon usage is atrocious. Um, Thank you. I've, I'm embarrassed that we're peers. Um, See, let's um, get into this and, now. And let's <laughs> get into what's real. <laughs> um, I would love to, but we have we have a second question, which mm. is um, tell us something we don't know either about you or the world at large. Okay, here's something strange about me that very few people know. Okay. Um, it's a physical thing. Everything mm. on my body goes to the left in this, in this, very, in this very slight way. Ew. Um, I, well, I mean, I mean that too, but, I'm not, but I'm, not, I'm not limiting it to that. My hair pattern sort of grows to the left. I have this thing, like... From smiling over the years and from it being so inclined to the left, it's made almost a dueling scar on the left side of my face. <laughs> um, when I was just in Edinburgh with Lauren Stein from the Paris Review, we were driving someplace and he looked over and said, do you have a long knife scar on your face? It really, it really looks strange. Um, <laughs> and there, there are other little little examples of it. Yeah, so I don't, I don't know. I, I was just, I'm just a left person. I'm, I'm, you know, it's sinister. What about your politics? Yeah. Yeah, those two. So, Rico, earlier this year, John was awarded the prestigious Pushcart Literary Prize for his essay, Mr. Lytle, which you can find in his new book, Pulpit. Yeah, it's no Eater Award for Best Bathroom. That's true. So, but I guess it's all right. Yeah, I, it's a little different. <laughs> Folks, we take care of your whole brow here at the dinner party. Hi, 
middle, and low. Mostly middle. <laughs> if you dig it or you'd like to beat us upon our brows, yeah. you can contact us at our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. Ladies and gentlemen, we've brought you small talk, etiquette from Dick Cavett, cocktail recipes. The only thing left to share is some music for you to listen to as you're out and about this weekend. And here with suggestions is Janet Weiss. She is the drummer for the indie rock supergroup Wild Flag, who have been touring in support of their self-titled album. Listen to her. Hey, I'm Janet Weiss. I'm the drummer for Wild Flag, and I have picked three songs to play at your dinner party. The first is I Only Have Eyes for You by the Flamingos. My love must be a kind of blind love. I can't see anyone but you. It's just a haunting song from the 50s with some of the coolest vocals and background vocals I've ever heard. like it was transitioning into like a different era like it was coming out of doo-wop but it was also transitioning into the 60s a little bit so there's like a little bit sort of weirder slightly more psychedelic kind of sound to the song okay number two Houses by a woman named Elise. I could never make it in your house. You could never make it in mine. Even if we were both well met and I born in another time. Just like a circle around the sun. Incredible stomping like beat a and a very intense vocal delivery and a guitar solo by Neil Young. She's Canadian. I guess he was just like wandering by the studio and he knew her from Canada and uh, came in and laid down some incredible one note solos, which are his specialty. One of the coolest songs you'll ever hear, or not hear. <laughs> number three. Okay, number three is going to be, because it's a dinner party, we may as well play Bring It On Home To Me by Sam Cooke. If you ever change your mind about leaving, leaving me behind, bring it to me. Great harmony singing. I don't even know who is singing that harmony, but it's amazing. And Sam Cooke's maybe my number one favorite male vocalist. It's the perfect voice, perfect tone and delivery. He sells it. You really think he means what he's singing. Uh, 
Uh, music from the 60s and 70s, mostly the 60s, I think I've picked. Uh, it's a good era for dinner parties. If I was going to pick a Wild Flag song for a dinner party, I think it would have to be like a potluck. I guess I would pick Racehorse. It's very rowdy and uh, might promote some good conversation afterwards. Or a riot. That's your dinner party soundtrack from Janet Weiss, drummer for the band Wild Flag. And Brendan, since Janet was wondering, I actually I looked into it. Okay. The guy doing backing vocals on that Sam Cooke tune was Lou Rawls. Oh, of course. Lou Rawls, backup. Sure. Those are the days. There was a plethora of talent lying about. They had a deep bench back then. Folks, that's the dinner party for this week. Next time, Rico braves a meeting with filmmaker David Cronenberg, the master of psychological horror. He's perfectly nice, by the way. Jackson Musker is the assistant producer of The Dinner Party. Also nice. Absolutely. Thanks to Brendan Willard, Chris Clark, Peter Clowney, Ellen Gettler, Craig Curtis, Judy McAlpin, and happy birthday, Dad. Bon appétit. Bon appétit.